Well, if you have your Bibles tonight, again, let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And we're going to take up, as I said, the second piece of armor, which is found in verse 14. Now, the sentence, as you know, begins there in verse 14 and doesn't really end to verse uh, 16, but it's still talking about separate things, and so we're looking at them separately. But they all are part and parcel of the whole armor of God. And, of course, as we've mentioned, that we're to put all of this on, not just one piece over against another. So let's begin by reading just this verse here. Stand therefore, verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. So as we continue to look to the different pieces of armor that we are to put on, I want us to realize that... uh, First of all, that and as we introduce this again, this isn't just for certain kinds of Christians. It's not for those who consider themselves super saints or for those who are uh, what we would think are Satan hunters. But in reality, these pieces of armor and the whole armor is meant for every Christian. All of us, in some way, some manner, and issues dealing with our own callings, uh, we are met with the wiles and uh, the devices of the devil. Now, it's true, it may come to us in different ways, these things do, uh, depending on our uh, callings and depending on our constitutions, as far as that goes. But we need to recognize that all of this is for each of us. So don't go away thinking, well, yeah, that's right, but you know, that's good for someone else, but I'm not really interested in uh, having any face-offs with Satan, so I'm hoping he's going to leave me alone. That's just not how it's going to work. You and I are born into this world, and we are born... Again, by the grace of God, and that puts us not uh, away from the enmity of God, but it does make us the enemies then of Satan when that takes place. And so he's no friend of ours, and he knows that, and we're reading our Bibles and at least believe the Scriptures. We know that that's true. We are no friend of his. So don't think here this evening that none of this has any bearing upon you, for in reality it does. Remember, Paul is writing here to the church to the saints at Ephesus, and thus it is in speaking to all of us here in in this context. So the second piece that we want to pick up tonight and look at is that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We see it there in the latter part of this verse, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Actually, that is a uh, passage that's found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. Uh, chapter 59 and verse 17 in particular. It's actually a quotation from the Old Testament. Paul is bringing in here for a piece of the armor. And I said 59, right? Yes, Isaiah 59 and verse 17. Uh, Let me start with verse 16 of the paragraph. He says, And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness. It sustained him for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now, we may scratch our heads and wonder all what does that mean prophetically? I think it has to deal with Christ first and foremost, and then also dealing then with his people. And it brings us then to what we'll be dealing with tonight. That is this piece of armor known as the breastplate of righteousness. Well, we'll look at this similar as we did the other ones. The first one is, what's the breastplate? Well, 
in the military terms in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with here in the first century. Uh, breastplate is a piece of armor which was put on by the soldier to protect the chest and what we would call the stomach area. It would cover a lot of vital organs, obviously, from that aspect, the heart, the lungs, stomach, other organs that are obviously needed to survive. Now, some have argued that the breastplate only covered the front and it didn't cover the back, thus you wouldn't turn your back on Satan, that sort of thing. But in reality, in the first century, both in Roman as well as in Grecian times, the breastplate not only covered the front, but uh, they found things that show that it completely uh, took in the whole man as far as the front and the back, the whole trunk, as we would say, of the individual. But on the whole, though, it was put on for uh, the front protection because the dealing is you're fighting someone, you'd be facing them, and thus you would have your front part of your body open to harm. And so that's what the idea here is a breastplate. Now, secondly, there is considerable disagreement with commentators as just what the righteousness that speaks of here in our text. He says, put on then uh, the breastplate of righteousness. Some say that it has to do with the imputed righteousness of Christ. And some say it has to do with the imparted righteousness of Christ. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, uh, there's a difference between night and day, as a matter of fact. And so we need to listen up carefully about this. The imputed righteousness of Christ is the righteousness given to us by the Lord Jesus as it is his righteousness that is imputed to us by faith and faith alone. In other words, I stand looking and being righteous, not because I have done something in order to obtain it, but it is the righteousness that is mine through the merits or the law keeping of Jesus Christ. That is the imputed righteousness, and that's what's involved in the doctrine of justification. When God justifies us, He imputes the righteousness or the right doing of Jesus Christ. Now, the imparted righteousness is the righteousness that is wrought in us, truly by Christ, in our day to day life. It would be our personal holiness that it stems from that principle of holiness that lies within us. The Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Now, both of these righteousnesses are important. Both are found in the whole economy of salvation. Now, some have said, though, that it means both. Now, that's not a bad answer. Obviously, you would be able to hit both of them as you were going through here. Whenever you find a man who has the imputed righteousness of Christ, he will not be without the imparted righteousness of Christ and vice versa. You'll never find a man who is living holy according to the word and law of God who isn't or who doesn't have the imputed righteousness of Christ. So, which of it here is meant? Well, I personally believe by the time we get to the end of the day, it is not the imparted righteousness that is meant here at all as a hope, as a breastplate to us, but it is the imputed righteousness of Christ. When I say it's not personal holiness, because when we think about that, all of us, when we realize that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, 
that we do find imperfection even in the best of our uh, performances. Paul said that when I would do good, sin is still present with me. And brethren, we know that if we were to take a gander at our life and we were to lay it right aside the law of God, both the literal as well as the spiritual aspects of the law, we would have to say we will still fall short. And that, brethren, to me, how in the world can that be any hope or any kind of consolation in the midst of our battles against Satan to hope and to trust that it is my personal righteousness that is going to encompass my chest area and hope to be any help to me. Well, it's not. The absolute hope that we have and the trust that we have in the greatest day of battle that faces us when Satan comes and he whispers those things and evils against us and towards us and about us, it won't be the imparted, my personal righteousness that will get me through the day. It will be Christ's righteousness that I will trust that will be a help and a protection to me. So that's how I see it. Speaking here of the imputed or, uh, yes, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Well, I'm going to handle this in four areas. First of all, I'm going to ask, uh, what is it? What is meant by the imputed righteousness? We gave briefly an answer. Secondly, how is the imputed righteousness a breastplate, or how then does it protect me? Secondly, or thirdly, we're going to see Satan's advances against it. Remember, we said if we have a certain piece of armor on, that is where Satan is likely to attack. So if I have a breastplate of righteousness, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ, how is he going to make war against that great and honorable doctrine? Well, he does. Well, we're going to look at that. And then fourthly, we will close then with some applications and then some observations. For the first then, imputed righteousness, what it is or what is it? Now, we, brave, we briefly mentioned the definition of imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness which is given to us in the obedience of Jesus Christ. Now, righteousness, whenever you see it in the Word of God, whether you think it of as it is the imparted aspect or that which we do every day, or the imputed which Christ gives us, it is defined by the law. The word righteousness simply means right doing. And right doing, not according to our standard, but according to a standard that is unalterable. It is according to a standard that is sure and fixed. And the only thing that we know of that in the Word of God is the law of God. And yes, we would call it normally the Ten Commandments, the moral law, whatever you want to call that. It is the law of God that is revealed in God's Word that is a standard of what is the absolute righteousness that we are to attain unto. If we do not, then God will damn us because we deserve nothing but hell for our transgression of the law of God. So righteousness then, in and of itself, is the obedience to the divine law of God. And anyone who has studied the first three chapters of the book of Romans knows then that this is exactly what you and I are without. We are without this righteousness. Everyone who is seated in this room this evening has not obeyed perfectly the law of God as it is revealed from our Creator. None of us. You say, well, I know I keep some. Yes, but do you keep them all? Well, no, I don't keep them all, but I keep a lot. Yes, but do you keep them all? No. Well, then there's your problem. 
You cannot and you will not keep the law of God. In fact, we must not only keep it, we must keep it perfectly. And as Galatians shows us in chapter 3 and verse 13, it must be kept perpetually. It's not just that we keep it once and hope we have righteousness. It has to be an ongoing thing. And as again, as Romans points out, let's turn there if you would, please. Romans chapter 3. This is old hat. I realize this to everyone here. But again, how often, brethren, does Satan come and mess up our thinking when it comes to this doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ? There is not a, one of us in here who hasn't at some time in some measure in our Christian walk doesn't depend upon his righteousness, but we suddenly begin to depend upon our own righteousness for a standing before God. And brethren, that's our downfall. We will never be strong in the Lord. We will never walk faithfully in Christ Jesus and walk out that salvation that we ought to if we have any dependence upon our personal righteousness for our standing before God. This is something that Paul hits over and over again, especially in the gospel account or the, uh, uh, the epistle accounts of Romans and also the book of Ephesians. Well, let's turn to Romans 3. And I realize, again, we have spent numerous hours preaching through the first few chapters of the book of Romans. And yes, Lord willing, one day we will get back to Romans 8. And I have a little story to tell you when we do that, just as an application to get us into that. But we are going to be getting back to Romans chapter 8 where we left off. But for now, turn to Romans 3, as we said, and look in verse 10. Here, Paul has just got through demonstrating that both Jew and Gentile, both those who have the written law of God and those who don't have the law of God, except that which is written in the heart, he shows us here that both are condemned before God. All are sinners. All are undone. All, as he says in verse 9, they are all under sin. Sin's dominion. Sin's reign. All of this is gathered on top of us to where absolutely there is no hope in us. Then in verse 10, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous. There's the term. There's none who do right. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the state of mankind as they come out of Adam's loins. That's every single one of us who sit here or stand here this evening. And brethren, if we were to take that divine standard, the law of God, and we were to take our lives and we were to check this so-called obedience of ours, let me ask you, how would you rate? You say, well, I'm a Christian. I know I keep God's commandments because the Bible says I do. Okay, we'll take that for granted. First John does. But as you take even that righteousness or your right doing and you lie that up against God's law, you tell me, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm not committing adultery. Oh, but do you lust with the eye? I haven't killed anyone. Oh, but are you angry with your brother without a cause? Do you covet? Do you lust? You see, even when we who are Christians walk as the way in which we ought to be walking, there is still the tendency and 
the liability and the actual doing of evil that is still with us. We still fall short. And again, if the standard is the law of God, and it is, then you and I fail that test. You know, when Paul writes Romans 3, is he a Christian? Of course he is. Is he including himself there? Of course he is. So in this view shot here of Paul, even as a saved man, he still says, in this context, there is none righteous, no, not one. So we can boast all day of our personal obedience, which needs to be there. We have no doubt about that, and we're not preaching against that. But what I am saying, even that falls way short of the glory of God. So what's looked at here is that God is the lawgiver. God is the judge. We are the criminals standing in His court. And what He sees are a bunch of lost, wicked, sinful disobedient creatures. And so as we stand here before our judge, God we see judges us how? Well, in our persons, in Adam, he judges us condemned. Look in verse 19 and guilty. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, and that's everybody, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's Jew, that's Gentile, that's saved, and that's lost, as far as it looks in Adam's case, or our own case personally. Now, in fact, if you were using the law as our standard, and not all of us here may be guilty before the whole world, but the fact is we are, aren't we? We may not think so, but in all of our actions, in all of our thoughts... Brethren, we have failed miserably before God. And thus then, we have no righteousness of our own. No, not one, the Scripture says. And that's why, and again, if you go to Isaiah 64 and verse 6, and actually that context is quoted in the New Testament, by the way, in one of Paul's epistles. He tells us there, in referencing it to Christians, He says there are none, or he goes on to say that all of our righteousnesses, plural, are as filthy rags. So as we stand before God as as he is our judge, he doesn't cut any slack. He isn't like modern day judges who may look at the case and say, well, you know, I feel sorry for this individual or that sort of thing. He cannot and will not do that. God, as the absolute moral judge over his creation, looks upon us and he sees none righteous, no, not one. Not a one of us. So then, brethren, what a contrast are we then to the law of God? which speaks of perfect righteousness. What a difference we are to God, for instance, who created us. When we stand God here before us as He is a moral uh, uh, being, He's a God, and yet how far short do we fall of Him and His likeness? What then, if we view this from our fallen, sinful, and depraved state, is the protection then 
of this to us as a breastplate. If it is our righteousness, by which, by the way, we have already been found guilty and judged guilty, how can that be any kind of a protection to us? It's not. It's none. It's not a protection against God. And it's not a protection against Satan. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So well, I thought you we weren't going to talk about our own righteousness. Well, my point here is to show you why this is not our own righteousness. If we want the pleasures of heaven, so to speak, and we want to flee from the wrath of God, and we want to have something that's going to stand the day when we fight against Satan, brethren, it cannot be my righteousness. It cannot be your righteousness. So, what do we do? Where does any come from? Well, we can be very thankful this evening that there is a righteousness that has been provided for us. And that righteousness is that which is done by Jesus Christ. Now, again, righteousness, you remember, is that which is defined by keeping the law of God. Jesus Christ came into this world, you remember, born under the law, and thus he kept the law. He kept the law as a man individually. But that wouldn't have done any good. But he also kept the law of God as the God-man. Thus giving efficacy to all of that to us. Jesus Christ accomplished that in his law-keeping which we could never have done. So it is his obedience to the law of God that is counted as righteousness. Look again in Romans, if you would, Romans chapter 1. Remember, this is what's revealed in the gospel. When we come and we preach the gospel, we don't preach personal righteousness as good news. In fact, that would be the worst news, wouldn't it? Because we have none. This is why I'm troubled by those who tell people what they must do in order to be saved. And they tell them a whole list of things to begin to do. Or worse, not to do. It doesn't make any difference. Either way, man is going to be a lost and doomed and damned creature because of the state in which he is in. And what he needs is not his own works. What he needs is the works of another. And that, my brethren, is what is provided and spoken of and is proclaimed in the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, that is in the gospel as it's preached and set forth, is the righteousness of God which is the breastplate of righteousness. And it is that which is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Look in Romans chapter 3. Again, already showing us here that it cannot be our law-keeping that saves us, or the lack of our law-keeping that saves us, or any of the law-keeping that saves us. The fact of the matter is, we've all been condemned. And he goes on to say then in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law, that is the standard of righteousness, is the knowledge of sin. 
We see the Ten Commandments. We see what they're to, we're to do and what we're not to do. And we look and we see we've, we've broken them. Thus, I am a sinner before God. It defines for us what sin is. And that's what he says there. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God, this is the righteousness we need, without the law is manifested. That is, without our law keeping personally. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He says, even the Old Testament testifies to the fact that it's not your righteousness. It's not your law keeping. But it is the law keeping of Christ. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Turn now to Romans 5, verse 18. Paul is dealing with two separate heads. Here, that is in Adam and also in Christ. In one head, that is in Adam, we have all sinned. Adam's sin is imputed or laid to my account. And this is proven, he says, by death. That's why you die. But then he says there's another head and that's Christ. And it is all those who are under him then, who are related to him, are pronounced not condemned, but we are justified or made righteous. Therefore, he says in verse 18, as by the offense of one, that is Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. All in Adam are condemned. And he says in the same way, or even so, that's what the word adverb there means, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And here's the point, verse 19. For, as by one man's disobedience, now who's that? That's Adam. By his disobedience, what happens? Many, that is those who all were in Adam, were made sinners. All whom Adam represents, and did represent, they are made or constituted sinners. So, that is in the same way, the obedience of one shall many be made or constituted righteous. So depending on under whose head we are under, then we are either condemned or we are made righteous. And so under the obedience of Christ, notice that it is the obedience of Christ. The obedience of one. Not my obedience, but Christ's obedience, His law-keeping, His taking care of the law on my behalf. Philippians 3, turn there now. And by the way, this is a doctrine that is denied today, even by supposedly reformed men. Uh, and if you get into the theology of all this, it's divided up into the Passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience is Him dying on the cross for our sins. Being obedient there, that's obedience too. The, the active obedience is His literally taking, being made under the law and obeying all of that, all those precepts, and then that being imputed unto me. That's His active obedience. Both of those, by the way, are ours. Uh, while many will not deny the... Uh, the uh, passive obedience, we have men today denying the active obedience. That is, Christ didn't literally walk out my obedience by his law keeping. They say that's a made up doctrine. Well, Romans 5 and verse 18 or 19 says, By the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. 
You can't get around that. And then he tells us again in Philippians 3 and verse 9. And being found in him, notice, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So there's the righteousness of God. It's the obedience of Jesus Christ, both in his life and his death. We receive it, how? By faith and faith alone, according to Romans 3 and according to Romans 4. So that is then the breastplate of righteousness. That is what, brethren, we are to put on. Now, we've done it when we were saved, but the matter of the thing is, this is what we are to wrap around us on a constant everyday activity, to have this doctrine before us, not trusting in our own righteousness, but the righteousness which is by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, secondly, the question is, how is this a breastplate? That's all wonderful doctrine. It's great to talk about it. It's one of my favorite issues as far as coming to the Word of God, speaking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness, justification of a believer, as it's called also in the book of Romans. But how is that then a breastplate to the believer? How is this a piece of armory that's going to fight the wiles of the devil? Well, as we mentioned, a breastplate is that which protects mainly the heart of the man. And so does the imputed righteousness of Christ. How does it? How does the imputed righteousness, how does that glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, where we receive Christ's righteousness, yea, for all, as, for all eternity, as far as that goes, um, this is ours, in the mind of God, as an imminent act, it's a done deal, Romans chapter 8. All of this is ours, and it is in time received by faith. And so when God justifies me in time, He declares me not guilty. But not only that, He also pronounces me righteous. Now, how does He do that? He does it because of Christ's righteousness then being laid to my account. And so when He sees Mark Langley... He doesn't see Mark Langley and his sins. He sees Mark Langley in Christ's righteousness. And just as if I had never sinned. In fact, even in a better state. Because I have a righteousness that has been wrought by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Not by Adam, not by me as a mere man. But as our mediator, who was both God and man, who puts a special oomph, as it were, to his obedience, which is imparted or, excuse me, imputed unto me. Now, how is that then a breastplate? How does that protect me in my day-to-day affairs with Satan? Well, first of all, it gives to us the only grounds of divine acceptance with God. I have no other grounds of being accepted before God but by Christ's righteousness. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word peace there isn't speaking about, uh, oh, my heart feels good. I'm happy today that he's my Savior. But it's talking about the peace so that that enmity is no longer there that once existed. 
I now have peace with God through that very thing. So my acceptance with God, Him being pleased with me, no longer lies in my being good. It lies in the fact that Christ was good. And His goodness or His obedience or His righteousness is imputed to me. But not only that, it is our only grounds of assurance in a personal sense that I am accepted with God. In other words, how do you know you're saved? You know the old, uh, how do you know that you're saved, that you're saved? Well, the grounds of my assurance are not my works. It's never what I've done or will do or begin to do or hope to do. The very ground of my assurance is Jesus Christ and His righteousness. It's not how much and how obedient I am that is the grounds of my assurance. It is Christ is the grounds. His promises. It's the truths of what He said. It's the very only thing, brethren, that can calm the accusations of a conscience. So, well, I think it's because I keep the law myself now. What do you do, you poor Christian, when you don't faithfully keep God's law? How can you ever think then you were saved? How can you gain assurance if you debase, if your assurance is based as a grounds in your obedience with God? Then tell me, what do you do with imperfection of obedience? You would have an imperfect assurance. That's the only thing you could ever have. But God says we can have full assurance. How can that full assurance come? Well, the only grounds by which it can come is through the imputed righteousness of Christ. That I am accepted in the beloved, not because I am so beloved, but because Christ is my covering. Christ is is my righteousness. Now, I didn't say evidences. Now, please listen to what I said. I said it's the only grounds of our acceptance before God. If I have a conscience wondering whether I'm saved or lost, brethren, I better first go to the grounds of my assurance, which is the righteousness of Christ. Any other, you're just on a spiraling on your way down to depression and destruction itself as that goes if you question that ask me afterwards and we'll go through it again secondly it gives to us assurance that God is on our side again if we've been accepted in the beloved then obviously he is ours in Romans 8 verse 31 he says watch now this is again in the midst of all of this great doctrine Paul says all of this What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? When we have the righteousness of God imputed to our account, it gives us that assurance that God is no longer against me, but He is for me. And He is on my side. Thirdly, it is a protection of all things that Satan, the world, and sin can put Against us. Who shall separate us? Well, no, back to verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? 
It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, brethren, if we were to take that and say, okay... I know then that my acceptance with God is my obedience. Then what hope, brethren, would we have in any of these things if it was dependent upon me? Or you, for that matter. This is the only surefire doctrine that protects against the onslaughts of temptations, Satan's wiles, and even despondency of the Christian. In other words, if you're depressed, let me point you to Christ's righteousness. Quit looking at your own. Because you ain't got much. And the more you look at your own, the worse you're going to feel. That's where the conscience will begin to do its work. And is there any wonder then you feel miserable? But when you have a right understanding of the righteousness of Christ, And that it is His righteousness that is what makes us ours. He is the one who has clothed us. You remember as Isaiah talks about a bride who is adorned by her ornaments and all the pretty stuff that she wears on her wedding day. That's how Christ enclothes us. And so when God looks at us, He sees us. That's why He can say to Israel, I saw no gal in Him. That's funny. I read the Bible and see lots of gal in, 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 in Israel. But it was God who said that. How could he said that? say that? Because he wasn't looking at the person of, uh, of, of Israel. He was looking at the Christ of Israel. You read the Song of Solomon and all that beautiful language one to another. And, and he says about his love that she is undefiled. How can that be? In our own person, surely we are. But God's not looking in that direction. He's looking in the direction of His Son, whom we are clothed with in His righteousness. But brethren, we begin to look at our own, even the best of our works. We see nothing but failures and uh, misunderstandings. The tongue isn't kept as we ought to keep it. The law itself, all these things. Is there any wonder then we will begin to become despondent. And when that happens, we are very liable to temptations about us. And this is why, brethren, Paul spends eight chapters in the book of Romans to describe all of this. He knows whereof he speaks. Well, that's just three ways. There are others, but those three quickly. And then thirdly, we're running out of time. Satan's advances against this. Now, Think of this. If this is the breastplate of righteousness and Satan's going to attack my heart, what then are going to be his weapons against this? Well, one of the things he will try to do is to convince you that you do not have the righteousness of Christ. He can do that in several ways. He can deny, have you deny the doctrine totally, which is exactly what's being done today. 
or your own personal assurance of that very fact that you have the righteousness of Christ. So he'll work in that way. Secondly, he will get you to take your eyes from this blessed truth of imputed righteousness and hope to get you thinking that you are accepted of God by your own merits. That's one of his favorite tools is to get you to believe that you are accepted with God by what you do or you do not do. How many, I won't see, I don't even want to see the hands, but how many of us who are we not often tempted to think that I stand righteous before God because it's based on something I do or don't do? We're all tempted like that, aren't we? Instead of resting in Christ, we rest in our works. Good works, bad works, it doesn't matter. But Satan's ploy or his device is to get us to take our eyes off of that. Thirdly, he will pervert the teaching of it. Thus, a thorough understanding of it by God's people then will be clouded. He will send in false teachers. He will send in teachers who will come and they will mix grace and works. You say, how do you know he does it? Because that's exactly what he did in the book of Galatians. The Galatian believers were beguiled into believing that their, that faith alone did not justify. But they had to do something in order to get it. And then fourthly, if faith is the means by which it is received, don't you bet Satan then is going to mess with that as well? Try to find a good working definition of faith in books today being printed. It's pathetic. They don't even know what it is. Even so-called reformed authors stink when it comes to defining faith. I'm serious. It has gotten that bad. Well, that's just one of Satan's ploy. If we know that we, we receive it by faith and faith alone, if he knows we can't disbelieve the doctrine, he's going to mess with the channel by which righteousness is imputed. And there again is what the issue really was at hand in the book of Galatia, Galatians. It was how Christ was received, how righteousness was received. And Paul says, if anyone comes teaching any other gospel than which I have preached, let him be accursed. So that's where he'll attack. Well, let me close with some applications. First of all, to the lost here this evening, we have, you have to admit, I hope you can, or at least see, at least in an outward form, that the test for you is the law of God. And lay your life up against it and see that you have not lived that perfect life. And thus you stand, as Romans 3 and verse 19, you stand guilty before God. And you're only awaiting the sentence to be carried out, which is eternal condemnation. But let me assure you here this evening, there is one who has lived that life perfectly, who has brought in, as the Bible says, everlasting righteousness for his people. And that's none other than Jesus Christ. And we receive it by faith and faith alone. Not, not even repentance enters in into this issue. And we preach repentance. But repentance does not gain righteousness. Paul doesn't even get a hundred feet to the word repentance 
in the book of Romans. Look at it. It's not there. So in the matter of justification, the matter of imputed righteousness, it is not found. But faith and faith alone. Romans 4, it's not of works. He tells us, chapter 4 and verse 3 of Romans For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. And there are people who... Reformed who say God does not impute righteousness to the believer. Here is a verse that says it. And he does it without works. Good works, bad works, mediocre works, it doesn't matter. It's any kind of works. And then thirdly, to the saints who labor to keep a good knowledge and a good understanding of this blessed doctrine, brethren, labor to continue on in it. Don't give it up. As often as Satan comes around to us, we need to realize that this is the only thing in this context that is going to protect my heart. It won't be by me looking at my works. It will be by me looking at Christ's works. So when Satan comes and he tries to cause us to deny this truth or to lead us into a sin... Find refuge and comfort knowing that Christ and God, brethren, are on our side. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? May God grant all of us a fuller view of Christ's righteousness and how it pleases God to view us in Christ's righteousness. He's pleased. He would have it no other way. This is why He can rejoice over us, even with singing. Not because of what we do, but because of what His Son has done. Well, to me, that's glorious. That's the good news of the gospel of Christ.